0: Section 22 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Story, Volume 11 Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 22. The Second Capture of Louisburg 1758, by Agnes C. Laut. The first capture of Louisbourg was made in 1745 by Pepperell and the New England militia. At the close of the French and Indian War in 1748, Louisburg was given back to France in exchange for Madras in Hindustan, which France had taken from England. Eight years later, the Seven Years' War broke out, and in 1758 Louisbourg was again taken from the French. The editor. Louisbourg first. No more dilly-dallying and delay to plant cabbages. The thing is to reach Louisbourg before the French have entered the harbor. Men of war are stationed to intercept the French vessels coming from the Mediterranean, and before winter has passed, Admiral Boscoen has sailed for America with 150 vessels, including 40 men of war, frigates and transports carrying twelve hundred men general amherst is to command the land forces and with amherst is brigadier james Wolfe, age thirty-one a tall slim fragile man whose delicate frame is tenanted by a lion spirit or to change the comparison by a motive power too strong for the weak body that held it by may the fleet is in halifax by June, Amherst has joined Boscoin, and the ships beat out for Louisburg through heavy fog with a sea that boils over the reefs in angry surf. Lewisburg was in worse condition than during the siege of 1745. The broken walls have been repaired, but the filling is false—sand grit. Its population is some 4,000, of whom 3,800 are the garrison. On the ships lying in the harbor are three thousand marines a defensive force in all of six thousand and fifty heavy guns cannon and mortars imagine a triangle with the base to the west the two sides running out to sea on the east the fort is at the apex the wall of the baseline is protected by a marsh on the northeast side is the harbor protected by reefs and three batteries along the south side Droucourt, the French commander, has stationed 2,000 men at three different points where landing is possible to construct batteries behind barricades of logs. Fog has concealed the approach of the English, but such a groundswell was raging over the reefs as threatened any ship with instant destruction. For a week Amherst and Wolfe and Lawrence row up and down through the rolling mist and raging surf and singing winds to take stock of the situation. With those batteries at the landing-places there is only one thing to do cannonade them, hold their attention in a life-and-death fight, while the English soldiers scramble through the surf for the shore. From sunrise to sundown of the 8th, furious cannonading set the green seas churning and tore up the French barricades as by hurricanes. At sunset the firing ceased, and three detachments of troops launched out in whaleboats at three in the morning— two of the detachments to make a feint of landing while wolf and the other division was to run through the surf for the shore at freshwater cove the french were not deceived they let wolf approach within range when the log barricade flashed to flame with a thousand sharpshooters wolf had foreseen the snare and had waved his troops off when he noticed that two boatloads were rowing ashore through a tremendous surf under shelter of a rocky point quickly he signaled the other boats to follow in a trice, the boats had smashed to kindling on the reefs, but the men were waiting ashore, muskets held high overhead, powder pouches in teeth, and rushed with bayonets leveled against the French, who had dashed from cover to prevent the landing. This unexpected landing had cut the French off from Louisbourg. Retreating in panic, they abandoned their batteries, and fifty dead. The English had lost one hundred and nine in the surf it is said that Wolfe scrambled from the water like a drowned rat, and led the rush with no other weapon in hand but his cane. To land the guns through the jostling sea was the next task. It was done, as in 1745, by a pontoon bridge of small boats, but the work took till the 29th of June. Wolfe, meanwhile, has marched with twelve hundred men round to the rear of the marsh, and comes so suddenly on the grand and lighthouse batteries which defend the harbor, that the French abandon them to retreat within the walls. This gives the English such control of the harbor entrance that Drucourt, the French commander, sinks six of his ships across the channel to bar out Boscawen's fleet, the masts of the sunken vessels sticking above the water. Amherst's men are working like demons, building a road for the cannon across the marsh and trenching up to the back wall, but they work only at night, and are undiscovered by the French until the 9th of July. Then the French rush out with a whoop to drive them off, but the English already have their guns mounted, and Drewcourt's men are glad to dash for shelter behind the cracking walls. It now became a game of cannon play, pure and simple. Boscawen from harbor front hurls his whistling bombs overhead to crash through roofs inside the walls, Wolfe from the lighthouse battery throws shells and flaming combustibles straight into the midst of the remaining French fleet. At last, on July 21st, masts, sails, tar ropes take fire in a terrible conflagration, and three of the fleet burn to the waterline with terrific explosions of their powder magazines. Then the flames hiss out above the rocking hulls. Only two ships are left to the French, and the deep, bomb-proof casements inside the fort between outer and inner walls, where the families and the wounded have been sheltered, are now in flame. Amherst loads his shells with combustibles and pours one continuous rain of fiery death on the doomed fort. The houses, which are of logs, flame like kindling wood, and now the timberwork of the stone bastions is burning from bombs hurtling through the roofs. The walls crash down in masses. The scared surgeons, all bloody from amputating shattered limbs, no longer stand in safety above their operating tables. It is said that Madame Drucourt, the Governor's wife, actually stayed on the walls to encourage the soldiers with her own hands fired some of the great guns and When the overworked surgeons flagged from terror and lack of sleep, it was Madame Drucourt who attended the wounded. Drucourt is for holding out to the death until one dark night the English row into the harbor and capture his last two ships. Then Drucourt asks for terms, July 26th. But the terms are stern, utter surrender, and Drucourt would have fought till every man fell from the walls, and not one of the civil officers rushed after the commander's messenger, carrying the refusal, and shouted across the ditches to the English, "'We accept! We surrender! We accept your terms!' End of section 22. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dave Musgrove.